Welcome to Talk Design, the show where creatives have conversations. I'm Adrian Ramsey and I'm your host. Having lived a life of design myself, I wanted to share with you the creatives that inspire me and in turn may inspire you. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoy. guest on Talk Design today is Colin Healy. Colin Healy is a designer, beautiful homes, absolutely stunning homes, a lot of renovations, um, and he is in Connecticut in the USA. And I've had the pleasure of knowing Colin for a little while, but he's also got some other tricks up his sleeve, uh, which we will reveal along the way on this podcast. Colin, welcome to Talk Design, man. Lovely, lovely to have you here. Thank you, Adrian. It's great to be here. Um, I want to kick off with a couple of really simple little bits. One's going to be just give us a bit of runway as you, how did you become the designer you are today? Like what was the, what fascinated you and what age did you realize that design was probably going to be your thing? Well, I, I think I realized it very early on when, um, when I was a little kid, uh, about age seven, we moved from the city out to what was the country, but very quickly became it's now the city <laughs> suburbs. You know, yeah. so uh, when when we got here, there were still horses along the road and dirt roads in front of our house and so forth. And ten years after that, we were a metropolis. Wow! But uh, at any rate, um, we built a little cape, and so I was involved as a seven, eight-year-old in helping to, you know, put the hay around the footings of the foundation and uh, do all the little tasks of carrying things back and forth. And I think my first real, um, where I was really involved in construction when, was when I got to be about 11 years old. It was no longer cool for my sister and I to share a room. So I moved up to what was the attic of the Cape Cod house that we had built. And I helped my dad renovate it. Yeah, he wow. already had a dormer built, but we planned out the rooms and the bathroom in between and studded the thing up and did the sheetrock and all that. So that was a lot of fun. And I remember by the time I was about 13, I had a drafting table in my room and um, I was drawing cars. Right, cars. Yeah, mm. I was drawing cars and building. I'd take model cars and then I'd chop them all up and and uh, make the doors open and do all these kind of crazy things with them. And uh, I think I started doing all-nighters when I was about 15 or 16 years old. <laughs> so I was going down the path to designer doom, you know, from an early age. Oh, wow, that's fascinating. I get so fascinated with 
with something that you just couldn't let it go and you'd yeah. work well into the night on it. That's how that's the realization of a passion, isn't it? That's more than yeah. anything, that's what happens. Um, you could have ended up in Detroit. Yeah, I, I suppose I could have. Um, my my first degree actually was in industrial design, uh-huh. and there's there's a really strong component of car design in that. But yeah. I was really influenced by one of my professors who was very into interior design and furniture building, and uh, all of those sorts of things. And I I really got into the the path of doing architectural scaled work from the time I was in industrial design school. Right. And uh, it just seemed to have stuck. Yeah. Well, it's such an interesting thing. As you say, you could have ended up uh, coming off an industrial design, which um, so it intrigues me, industrial design. I think it's probably one of the broadest disciplines and it's everything that we touch as humans, well, that's man-made, um, comes off that base. You know, we, we may draw a house or we may draw a building, but somebody draws a handle and somebody, somebody creates those other pieces. And, you know, and sometimes that might be us. It might be us custom making something. But, you know, we pick up a knife and fork. We, you know, hold a plate. We do any of those things. They're all well they're, Everything that nature didn't make, we're responsible for in some way. And we either do it well exactly. or we do it poorly, you know. And, yeah, industrial design, I think, is, is probably overlooked so often as such an incredible discipline that affects everybody's daily life from whether it be a pen or a pencil or a computer or, a, you know, colour of a keyboard. And it, it affects people so greatly. Yes, a designer's work is really embedded in practically everything that we do. Yeah. And I, I was really fortunate that I had I had really great teachers back then. And it was really very much a Bauhaus style right. education. Yeah. Bob Redman, who was the chair of our department, actually knew Gropius, Gropius and yeah. Ryer and all those guys. And he was the uh, chair of the Industrial Design Society of America. So wow. just knew everybody. And he would have them come like we'd we'd have uh, lectures have- from guys like John Vassos and uh, my uh, my metalwork teacher was a Polish uh, immigrant. And he, at the time that he fled Poland, he was the premier industrial designer of Poland, and his name was Tomaszewski. And he came over, and he could barely speak English, yeah. but he taught us really well how to handle form in very interesting ways. And uh, he brought along with him, you know, his cultural background as well. I can't. I still remember when one of my classmates had the chance to choose a project and the project he chose was to design a prison and Tomaszewski nearly lost his mind it was like you're not gonna do that <laughs> because he had he came he had from, that. from that yeah yeah exactly I, I had fantastic teachers you know that's uh, that's the most amazing thing isn't it you know that passing of knowledge and um the the level that those guys were thinking at 
um, I always think this when you look back at, at you know, different different people's work and architecture is often, often easy to see if it becomes famous. It's, uh, you know, when I say easy to see, it might not be easy to get to, but it gets well photographed and well documented and stuff like that. Um, but the level of thinking to be in the room when they were, you know, pioneers and, but they, they came from a discipline. They came from this absolute discipline and they were rigorous in their um, view of, pushing for innovation constantly um but with within a real setting of knowing the rules i always think that you know if the reason you learn the rules is to know how to break them that's <laughs> exactly yeah. one is is they should be useful to getting you on the journey but after that they're just a platform to innovate from um you know i always think that when you're doing a something with the with the council or something like that, you know, the permits and stuff like that. It's like, well, what are we telling them? Hmm, okay. How do we how do we get what we want out of that? How do we interpret that? <laughs> exactly. But you're also a musician, um, and you play a lot. So again, another set of rules. Or I don't know, are they another set of rules? The rules for music versus the rules for design. Well, I mean, there there are overlaps. I mean, if if you think about music, you're thinking of a melody, which is the uh, the thing that most people hear first, where the notes kind of go up and down in a certain pattern. And there's there's this underlying structure of rhythm that's below that. How fast are those notes happening? And yeah. What order? And then there's volume. There's intensity. And those are similar to the way we design things. We design uh, for order. When you think about the way the, the Romans would do columns, they were, they were setting up a certain kind of order and yep. a certain rhythm. A certain rhythm. Element yep. That really make um, a building kind of hang together. Mm -hmm. And it, it was way way after that when the rule breakers figured out how to balance this thing over here and that thing over there coming at different angles and yeah. establish some kind of order out of that but what one of the things that i often tell my clients is that my role as a designer is to bring order out of chaos and you have all these chaotic ideas, all these things that you're thinking of, <laughs> all the things that you would love to happen. And my job is to try to figure out how to get some order in that to move it forward to get you to a final product. And that's very much the same thing that happens with creating a song. You know, there are all these random notes out there. And I think when I write songs, I'm kind of noodling around on the mandolin or the fiddle or something. And you get this little idea to it, but then you have to kind of figure out how how does that fit into the structure of the kind of song that you want to create. And you take all of these little pieces and you put them together. It's all the same. Yeah, it is, isn't it? it and it engages the, the same parts of the brain. So the brain's yeah. doing the same thing, but one of them you're based in um, audio and the other one you're based in visual. Exactly. So, so with that, with that audio bent that you have with, you know, cause you have that as well. Um, how do you go with when you're designing a home or 
renovating a home and designing a home for renovation, how do you go with noise control? One, this is one of my my pets. This is <laughs> if I had a dog, okay. this one this one would be on a lead right behind me all the time. How do we control noise? And what what's one discipline taught you versus the other? That um, that you know homes. I think that our our biggest freedom and our biggest um, pollutant is noise pollution. I know that's probably not right, but noise pollution and silence brings so much freedom of um, thought, but to the point where it can be scary, you know, to, to yeah. it's overwhelming. Silence can be overwhelming as well. Um, but tell me how you, how you take this and put it into when you're designing in a home, how do you take that musical understanding and make a home better because of it? Give away the secrets here, Colin. <laughs> I think there's a difference between the way you want noise to be in public spaces yes. and the way you want it to be in private spaces. So we all know that the trend today but I, I do mostly remodeling. So the yeah. kind of questions I always get is, can I take this wall out? You know? <laughs> can I make this room bigger? Yeah. Yep. <laughs> can I make this room bigger? Can I take this wall out? You know, do we, do we really need that wall there? And so the more of these barriers you take out, the more noise is possible in those spaces. The harder it is to control and, the, um, the transfer of noise. Yeah. So how yeah. do you control that? But that, on the other hand, creates a need for spaces with some doors on it. So, you know, the public spaces where you have all this activity going on, that's great. I think that that can be really cool. And people put in really interesting kind of sound systems with the sound coming from four different directions yeah, sure. to create theaters. But even when you're creating a theater, first you have to isolate that whole theater from all the other stuff that's going on yeah. around it. So um, I think basically what you have to understand is where is noise going to be appreciated and where will reverberance be appreciated and where do you want to get rid of that? Mm -hmm. So it's pretty common in my houses to put insulation in the walls. And I usually don't get to the point where I'm trying to use actual acoustic insulation, you yeah. know, just the regular just regular insulation. insulation is good sure. enough for most people's houses. But if it turns out to be, oh, here's a, an issue I had recently where a um, client wanted to make a guest room bedroom for their parents for when they came, the couples in their 30s. So they wanted really um, thin walls so they wouldn't stay yeah, too long. And, and they had, and they had, one wall dividing the the their bedrooms yeah. and the heads of the beds were head to facing head. one another <laughs> and it was the only way the design would work so i came up with a double wall sure. so we made two separate walls we filled in between it with about 12 inches of insulation yeah and unfortunately i can't tell you the results because they put off that part of the project but i was just fascinated by the challenge you know this is one of the things that i see and you must see this as well um is certainly that and and i've, I've actually approached that the same way 
um, a double wall, so two sets of studs, and a, and an air gap between those two, so they don't. Um, you still get some vibration in the floor, and you'll get vibration through the ceiling, you know, beams or trusses. But um, that, with both walls insulated, and then with uh, we call it jib rock here, you call it um, drywall there. But with a, a drywall that's um, either the fireproofing drywall or the soundproofing drywall, which is extra dense, sure. you know, that you see the guy. Heavier. Yeah, you see the guys try and lift that up and you go, oh, okay. <laughs> why is that so heavy? Oh, that's why. Um, but, yeah, the other one with that is is the number of times you see a somebody design something or you go to a place that's been designed and, you know, they've got a bathroom directly behind the head of the bed and, you know, the vanity is, is backing directly onto it. So you've yeah. got all that plumbing and stuff that's in there and it's just a – I, I spoke for me, I just look and go, well, fundamental, you know, mistake. And, exactly. you, you know, like, but again, this is like, I suppose that difference, isn't it? it it's the eye and how it sees something or how it breaks it down. And, and then it's being able to look at what noise will do. Um, and noise is like water, you know, it leaks that stuff. It's <laughs> That's for sure. Well, you know, there's a difference between new home design and remodeling. So yeah. sometimes you're able to, you know, get things to work out the best way. And other times you have to take radical measures like the double the walls. Double walls. Yeah. Insulation. yeah, exactly. But, uh, yeah. Obviously, the better thing would be to get them to face the other way. And, you know, oh, of course, yeah. Yeah, or put a robe in between them or something like that, you know, something that... that or a that, hallway. Yes, or a hallway, yeah. But, you know, that's... <laughs> I love um, I love the, the remodeling, the renovation, you know, um, side of design because you start with something that somebody has already decided isn't perfect for their needs. And everything that you do... Well, usually, let's just say, everything you do, they can already tell you the problems and they can they can tell you what it doesn't do for them because that's why they're frustrated and that's why you're in the room. And then everything you can do for them is an improvement to that situation. And so you're already on the front foot, you know, like you're on the front foot. And every time you improve it, their faith in you goes up. Um, <laughs> exactly. When you do a new build, you've got to convince the client. And I say convince, you've got a journey with the client. It's not about convincing them, but it's about a journey with the clients to a dream that's totally ethereal. It doesn't exist. It's only in their minds. And with it existing in their minds, you've got to unplug it from their mind and then decide what the landscape and the environment, how you're going to honour that and how it needs to be and how then form the structure out of that and then position everything with inside it. And so the journey is equally as fun, but you don't get as many, um, they don't have the problems that have been biting them previously to go into right. that process with. So their gratitude is more run on faith than just gratitude. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I love a nice mix but in my still, business. <laughs> you still have the things that you 
were able to uncover in your initial interview about what are the pain points yes. in their existing house that they're trying to solve. So yeah. there's still something to come back to, but it's not quite as concrete. Yes, it's not. It doesn't. It's not as direct. It's not as direct. Yeah. You know, it's um. I do. I really. That's one of the things I love about renovations. Is it's it's like direct feedback. It's it's very and and when. When, you know, they say to you, oh, can we take that wall down? Um, and you go, yeah, 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 we could take that wall down. You, you have a look and you go, yeah, well, we're pretty sure we can. We'll, you know, check that and da-da-da-da-da. And they almost get a I told you so moment when it's so good, even if you've had to manipulate a whole lot of other things. But they can't, They they were like, how do we take this wall down? Like, that? we know that we need this bigger. But I love the... I love that journey. It's a, it's a lot of fun. A lot of fun. Um, with the with the sound thing again, I think that um, we've got you know with the technology that's grown in glass and um, and also in being able to span bigger spaces and being able to transport steel and you know all these things, these technological changes that have given us the ability to open space up so much. Um, but we still have this, and I say we like I'm talking about everybody. Um, we still have this thing about uh, being living within a, a, a temperature zone that's probably no more than about five degrees. You know, we don't want it too hot and we don't want it too cold. And I think the pandemic being, you know, COVID pandemic has, has certainly taught us a lot about um, embracing nature better. Um, so we've got this real conundrum of we want to be outdoors while we're indoors. We want to be indoors in a set temperature. Um, we want to be able to see all the outdoors if we've got to close everything up. We want to be able to control the noise, but we want to completely wrap it in glass and then, you know, say, why is this noise so bright and brittle? Um, <laughs> we've, yes. We create our own conundrum, don't we? Um, yes. And a lot of it's to do with, you know, just our levels of comfort, but that whole how, you know, we don't want to be in the wind, but we want to be able to see it move the trees we just, sure. and so on. <laughs> Tell me how you deal with that. <laughs> oh, my God. You do it in renovations. If you're about 80% renovations, you know, somewhere around there, then you, you, you'd always be getting people asking you to open the space and give me more windows and you know, remove these walls to hell with the fact that the building's made of um, brick or, you know, whatever it is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That, I, I don't know that I have an answer to your question. Um, when I think back to, we were talking about sound. Yeah. You know, one, one of the things that was interesting to me about sound in older houses is that the spaces were often quite large. My mm -hmm. first home was a 1880s Victorian home in the south end of Bridgeport. And Bridgeport, this munitions manufacturing town yeah, I that I was that. talking <laughs> to you about before we, before we went on, was at one point kind of the Newport for New York. Seaside oh, wow. Park was donated to the city of Bridgeport by P.T. Barnum, who was an inhabitant of, of Bridgeport. And um, my house was in this little seaside community. And I can still remember 
the resonance of the sound in those rooms, mm -hmm. where when you'd come into the main hall of the house, you were greeted with this two-story space, and to the right void. side was a big foyer with a stairway that went up to a landing, moved about 12 feet, then it became a little library and a tower, and then it went up to another level, and then it, it was just fantastic. So, you know, when my sister and I weren't throwing parachutes off of the uh, off of the balcony, yeah. um, you know, we were singing and and just having a lot of fun with the way the house sounded yep. and the sound of singing at parties. My grandmother had 13 kids. And when I was born into the family, seven of them were still at home. Wow. Um, that would have been a fun place to go together. And so I just remember what that was like to be in a multi-generational home. It was actually quite grand, even though a bit run down. Yep. Um, and doing that, like that, that multi-generational thing is actually another interesting part of this. You know, we see a lot of uh, what you call in the States ADUs, or here we call them granny flats and stuff like that, where... Um, there is more of a, and, and kids staying at home longer because, uh, I don't know, education, whatever, you know, that people say, oh, they can't afford to go and live elsewhere or whatever. Maybe that's because of the cost of education. I'm not sure. Um, but we're seeing more and more of multi-generational homes as well. And a lot of people are trying to adapt homes that weren't made for multi-generational because they were made in the 60s in the 70s and those kind of things whereas you're talking about homes that were probably designed in the 30s and 40s are you is that about what what they would have been those bigger homes like that well the home that i was living in was built in the 1800s so that was oh a little longer than that <laughs> yeah that was quite different um so i think most of the homes that i deal with were built from 1900 on Occasionally, I'll get some antique house to deal with, but uh, mostly they're in that, that period around here. And um, the majority of them were not designed for multiple generations to live in. And in fact, there, there's something going on here in the States, which is um, called the missing middle. The mixing middle. It's, uh, the missing middle oh, the is missing middle. two family, three family, and four family houses that were the bread and butter of what builders put up during the time when immigration was so important for our country as it was growing. And there weren't big apartment buildings when you got outside mm -hmm. of the cities. There were all these two, three, and four family houses. And my experience as a kid, when we'd leave my grandmother's grand mansion and yeah. go to visit our relatives, we'd go to um, my Aunt Helen's house. And Aunt Helen lived on the first floor, and her brother lived on the second floor, and Grandpa lived on the third floor. And then we'd go over to Aunt Anne's house, and it was the same thing. The houses were full of families who lived in separate apartments, but they owned the building. And they were able to, you know, have this housing and multiple generations uh -huh. could live there, not in each other's faces all the time. Yeah, not, on, they, not on top of each other, but as neighbors. Yeah, it was just a wonderful thing. 
And those houses became run down as all of those folks that lived in them got a little bit wealthier and did what my parents did mm -hmm. and moved to the suburbs and left that housing behind. So in Connecticut, there's actually zoning guidelines in place to try to stimulate the building of those kinds of houses that can create more density and give people something more to live in than a big apartment or a big lot. I think that's a really interesting thing, you know, like, it, and then we get gentrification of neighborhoods again later, but that's a really interesting thing that these sort of like multi, multi-res type situations where you had um, multiple generations of a family living in one place. And at some point, as you said, the, the, the builders developed these with that in, as the purpose. Um, and so it's, it was almost like, as you said, it's apartment living, but in a big single house. And you, you see this um, in the UK as well, more as a result, not purposely built, but more as a result of bigger homes being chopped up and um, mm. the same sort of thing. And when you've got these um, amazing old homes, you know, that uh, or these old old structures that there's a lot of value in the in the um, history of a structure uh, that that can happen as well. Then you go, oh, wow, that's pretty cool that you can um, create that thing. And, you know, I don't know how long I've been drawing houses, but a long time. Other than people saying, oh, yes, well, we're going to do a duplex where, you know, mum and dad are going to live next door and we're going to live here. Um, the rise in the ADU of well, we've got space in the yard to put another piece or we can you know, convert this part of the home to a separate flat for, you know, our parents or whatever it is. But other than that, um, I don't, I, I've ne not come across any developers that were that here the mum in Australia. So I haven't come across any developers that were deliberately going after this, the, you know, the missing middle, as you say. Like, yeah, they, they haven't for years. And it, it has a lot to do with zoning priorities, um, zoning established in the United States and other places, I imagine, this idea of the single family home on a private lot as kind of the gold standard of what we, we should be building. Yes. So that created the suburbs. And as the suburbs get bigger and bigger, the commutes become farther and farther. Mm -hmm. And it just kind of reaches a limit. And you have to kind of come back in and see what else can be done to get more density. And so there are two tracks going on right now in Connecticut. One is this um, way of creating zoning that encourages builders and developers to create some of this missing middle housing. And the other, the ADU mo movement, mm -hmm. is to empower citizens who own homes to develop their own um, density by giving them the freedom to create an additional unit on their property that can throw off rent. Sure. It yep. can take care of grandma. Mm -hmm. It can 
be a place for your child to return home mm -hmm. after college where while they're in this transition or if they're newly married longer now yeah um or you can rent it to a a uh, service worker in your town that wouldn't otherwise be able to live in the town. There are just yeah. so many flexible uses that these uh, little buildings that can either be standalone or they can be carved out of part of the house can fulfill that when you look at the hotbeds of this kind of building out in Oregon and in California, they are becoming the main drivers of building permits in these communities because they're so in need. And are you seeing the same in Connecticut? Are you seeing the same growth? We in haven't it? Maybe yet not the because, same. Yeah, right, volume-wise. Yeah, we okay. haven't yet because the zoning ordinances here have been so restrictive um, that I've had the opportunity to be an expert about how to get people through the rules process yes. of getting their hearings and figuring out exactly how to make their little project work with the rules. And the rules have suddenly been made much more flexible. So I'm hoping that that leads to uh, more business for me. Yeah, well, exactly. And if it's something that you're really good at doing, um, you know, it, it should do, it should be, it, it, you, you're an expert in that field. So you will obviously gain business from it. Um, when you've got a, when you do the kind of homes you do, like, you know, you're saying a lot of these houses might be from the 1800s and stuff. Um, and I know, um, you know, they've, they've got history and they've got, I'm trying to think what it is, an aesthetic. And you've, you've got to modernise this aesthetic without ruining, modernise the living without ruining the aesthetic. Um, yeah. And again, you, there are a lot of um, designers and, you know, that, that ask, what's their style? What's their, what's your style? And um, it doesn't really make too much difference what your style is because if it's a, a renovation, there's possibly a style that the house is going to be hopefully kept in or maybe not. Um, and then it's also what's the client style is going to be the most important thing. Um, but with that, often, often the jobs that you would um, end up with, the style is already set with the, you know, with the current style of the home. It's the living that's going to change. Or am I wrong? Tell me about that. Yeah, that's, that's very often the case. And um, I, I have personally not been, and the kind of designer that would take a colonial style house and then decide to put something in the backyard that was in opposition to that, you know, to put one against the other and examine the tensions and all that. Usually my clients are looking for a house that looks really nice. And one of the, you've heard this before, if a person says, oh, it looks like it's always been there. Yes. You know, when you yeah. put an addition on, that's kind of a nice thing to be able to say that. But usually I'm trying to upgrade the rest of the house along with uh, whatever I'm doing is the addition. So mm. it usually gets elevated as well. But that drives a lot of the work that you do that's transformative to what happens on the interior of the house. Yes, 
yeah, you've got to have a really good um, a really good understanding of the living and the eye of what the interior will be like as well. And and you can yeah. still journey people with that. I know you've got a, a, a project, you know, um, the River Refuge. And uh, if, if people want to look this one up, um, it's an amazing looking home. Uh, tell me about that house. Uh, tell me about that project. So that that's a project that's on the uh, the Connecticut River. Yeah. And I actually designed it with a classmate of mine. It's his home. And he came to me with a good deal of the design worked out. And the two of us worked together to make it into the house that you're seeing there today. So I made it into a buildable project for him. And uh, we both went to the University of Bridgeport in the industrial design department. Yeah. And uh, he did most of his career in doing actual product design. His career was designing, um, well, a big part of it was designing John Deere tractors. And he would go from the Raymond, from the, uh, I can't remember which design office it was uh, in New York. And he would go out to uh, the Deere, John Deere factory and live with the farm folks for weeks at a time. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, work these things out. So in the end, he, uh, he got the chance to make this lovely house. And part of the charm of it was when they found this piece of property, there was a little inlet. Um, off the river. Off, off the river where he's able to create a place for his boat. And he had this wonderful boat that he had been remodeling and, and working on for years. So he was able to put it in the water there. Fantastic. But, uh, you know, the design of it really has a lot to do with like craftsman architecture. Yes. Yeah. There's different shingle patterns, a lot of interesting roof, roof lines to the design. But the inside of the home is really quite open and has this wonderful center stairway that takes you up to the, the second level. Fantastic. It is a beautiful looking home. It's, I always think of homes like this. It, it looks like a growing up lives there. Um, you know, some, somebody who's, who's um, grown up in life and they've got serious about things. Um, yes. But it's, uh, as you say, it's got a lot of that beautiful craftsman style to it as well. Like that it's, it, and it sits, in its landscape, but it's still on its landscape as well, which is really lovely. But the way the trees and stuff wrap around it, does it have a big basement on it? Is it is it got a no, basement? In, as well? No. In fact, part of the challenge of that was that when they bought the property, there was a house on it, and they had imagined that they could somehow use, you know, the foundation of the house. Mm -hmm. So I we went there at first before we really started the design. Um, we had this foundation. So I hooked him up with my favorite engineer that was not too far from his house. And uh, Richard Marnicky, the engineer, kind of set us straight with what we were going to need <laughs> to do for a riverfront house. And so we had a pure foundation and it was just amazing the amount of stuff that went into creating something for this house to sit on. Yeah, the and, platform, the stability yeah. for it, the, the real foundation. Exactly. Mm. Mm. Yeah, so it was an engineering challenge just to get the thing out of the ground so it wouldn't be washed away by the river. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, love it. I love the shingles as well. I love um, shingle patterns. I think that uh, 
they're such a beautiful way to be artistic. And you see a lot of this in you know, Germany and France and stuff like that as well in Europe, you know, these beautiful um, shingle patterns or, you know, tile patterns that might be external tile, wall tiles and stuff. But it's got a yeah. real, uh, it, it's a romance to it. I think that probably comes for most of us from the movies. Um, you know, other than the people like you have lived with that romance around you, the people that uh, where, you know, it doesn't get done in different parts of the world uh, where we don't end up with these shingle patterns and stuff. It's, uh, we see it from the movies or from travel and we imagine it from movies where it's, you know, it, it, it's the happy families and all those kind of anchors that sit with it. Yeah. Well, my connection to that kind of detailing goes all the way back to that, that Victorian where I lived when I was little. And I was so, well, let me first talk about the exterior. You can imagine at the two ends of the house, there were these huge gables. Yeah. And on the one that faced the carriage house in the backyard, the I'm, I'm sure it was Italian immigrants who built this. Uh, they took the entire gable and they created this stucco pattern. And then yeah. they took what turned out to be half rubber balls and they embedded them in this lovely pattern on the back. And I know they're rubber because occasionally when I was a kid, one of them would fall off. And so, <laughs> you know, it was the shingle patterns and then this other level of creativity that was really kind of interesting. So much. I was, of, okay, keep, so keep going. Yeah, the, the point that I wanted to make was that I was so influenced by that house, which was torn down when I was about 14 years old. The University of Bridgeport took over the house, gave my grandmother one of those three three family houses that I was talking about, yeah. even until she passed away. And she immediately installed cousins and uncles on the on the other floors she she did you know. she did what was how it was meant to be used she used it for exactly. purpose yeah, used yeah my it for cousin purpose. john lived upstairs and her daughter elizabeth and her husband lived on the on the top floor and um so <laughs> at any rate um i was so influenced by that house that when i was in architecture school when i was in my 50s yeah i drew the house from memory drew the floor plans of both floors in the attic and the basement. And I showed it to my dad, who was the middle child. And so he was still, you know, the oldest of the gang that was still at the house when I was born. So he was in charge of painting the house and all the upkeep. So he knew every nook and, nook and cranny of the house. And he basically testified that I got it right. I held yeah, wow. the whole thing down. So you'd mind mapped it. Yep. And um, and mind mapping it, yeah, yeah. I can still walk around it in you your know, mind just, now, just yeah. If it were there, this is one of those things when you go. Um, have you found your right calling in life? Um, you know, like uh, I, I'm, I'm the same with that mind mapping of things, but only if I choose to. Well, only if it intrigues me. You know, if I walk into somebody's house. And, you know, I go there and it's just a house to me. I don't try and fix it. I don't try and um, solve its problems. I just go, oh, yeah, it is what it is. Only if I'm asked or intrigued do I start to do that. You know, I, it, 
younger, when I was younger, I, it, it was a switch I couldn't turn off. But as a, I worked as a fashion designer for many years, and people would be like, oh, I'm, but, but I'm wearing this. And I'd be like, I didn't even notice what you wore. I stopped dressing people well, you know, at the start of the journey, no, but after I'd been in it for a while, I wouldn't even notice what people wore unless it intrigued me or unless it was stunning or unless there was yeah. something amazing about it. They were just, you know, thank God they were dressed. <laughs> that, would be, <laughs> that would be about my thing, you know, no judgment around it in, in any way. It would have to be either really shocking or really good for me to be wanting to even um, look at it, you know, or solve the problems of it. Um, yeah, but, but mind mapping notice, things is fascinating. Yeah, yeah, we do notice the things that we're fascinated by, mm, mm. And, and those stay in our memories, and that that pull on our analytics as to why it works. Why why does that work? Why doesn't that work? Um, yeah, let, I think so. Let's um, let's do just talk a little bit about um, the fact that you know Bridgeport brass and copper, and whether that. It still has a uh, a legacy that is shows up in the town, and also the fact that um, you know it it was a munitions type area in Connecticut there, um, which I find really fascinating. You know, some big brands, some amazing brands, uh, especially like you were saying, you know, Colt, Remington, and then you know Hartford with insurance. That's a Hartford itself is a brand that's attached to insurance outside of the name of the insurance company, you know? Sure, um, sure. So there's a lot of things that are very rooted in traditional history or background from that, from that area. And how does that show up in architecture and how does it show up in design in the area? Um, because you've got all these traditions that need to be, uh, I suppose, maybe innovated or being, held securely maybe is the other way of putting it i don't know you you give me some runway on that okay well well here here's some thoughts about that so these industries i i was talking before before we went on about yeah. how um brass and copper were two of the industries that were big in the housatonic naugatuck valleys and as you go up the valley you see this, this proliferation of all these lovely Victorian houses in all of the towns that are close to the river. And as you go away from the rivers, there aren't all these houses because that's where the wealth was generated along the rivers. Right. And that's where the industrialists built their homes and they built um, you know, institutions, the churches and mm -hmm. town halls and so forth. So there was a lot of really grand architecture in Connecticut that was built along with that wealth. Yes. And this, the city of Bridgeport, which um, we were talking about um, also, is where the helicopter was invented mm -hmm. by Igor Sikorsky, who was uh, a Russian immigrant. He... Um, he created a lot of wealth for a lot of people. And so the surrounding towns had a lot of really, really beautiful houses that were built as a result of that wealth. But other than that, I'm not sure that those things really have shaped our environment that much at all. Um, 
the the big factories when I drive through Bridgeport on Route 95, there were factories that at one time were producing um, vinyl records. Right. Um, they were producing um, sewing machines. The Singer Sewing Machine Company mm-hmm. was was in Bridgeport. And it, I could just go on and on with all the different industries that were there. But it really left us with all these hulks of buildings which yeah. had been abandoned for years. And it's only recently that we've really caught up to renovating those buildings so that they're really uh, using the wonderful structure that was in those buildings and turning them into something new and beautiful. So uh, that's been kind of the regeneration that's been happening now. How cool is that? That I love that. And then there's the embedded history, the embedded um history of those what those buildings once were and uh, yeah I think that's beautiful I I interviewed a guy on um, talk design here called Michael Pincus and Michael um, is the president of a company called Mr Steam and uh, for those of you who know what steam showers are um, Mr Steam is the biggest steam shower company in uh, in the US probably the world Um, and Michael's an Absolutely. He's a, a genius designer himself, but he, in saying that, he has this absolute love of things. And he got um, he got Tom Kundig to come and renovate their building in New York. And the building itself is, so it's an Olsen Kundig uh, renovation on an old building. And I wouldn't say it's gentrified, but it, it is, it's that thing where he's taken something and there's, you know, plenty of paint that's still peeling off and there's all those elements of it. It hasn't been tried to be cleaned beyond belief to being something it wasn't, but it's made highly functional. And uh, in true Tom Kundig style, it's got, you know, some beautiful um, operational pieces to it. And, you know, thanks to Michael, that building will go on and on and on um based on they're still manufactured there and stuff but based on the fact that he the love of it and then the taking that piece of history and pulling that forward and you know and tom kundig on the other side of it you know tom is is give me the ugliest thing you can find that's what i want to start with um give me something really ugly because then i can really do something with it and again what a beautiful way to approach it and those, that's what often those old buildings are. They were functional. They were industrial age type buildings. I'm looking forward to a, a tour um, when we finally get to, um, to travel again. Uh, and I interviewed another guy recently, a guy called Colt Wrangler. And um, Colt Wrangler Lyons. Yeah, how's that for a name? He's from, he's from Texas, but he builds... Um, motorcycles he makes custom motorcycles for people a lot of calf races and different sorts of motorcycles as his business and he's also a bronc rider and a bull rider as well um but yeah with a name like that and knowing that um you know bridgeport area is uh, the home of colt um maybe we'll get colt to join us on a tour up there he's a fascinating guy really cool guy um I've loved so many pieces we've talked about here and, and also that kind of the way things come together in that area and the way that shaped you and your business of, of how that is. 
and also the layers of when we started talking from music and you know using using sound as the i suppose the inspiration as to what happens in a home and how that works and the music piece is what i want to come back to because i want to ask you um a little bit more about the music and then i want to ask you to play some music for us um okay and if you're happy to do that just tell me the musical journey that that you know i mean you you play a lot um it's something that you do a lot of and yeah i, I play a fair amount i mean yeah. like like I so think many you can other... be i was going to say i think you can be found at the um you know downtown farmers market sometimes uh on your fiddle so um yeah. it's uh something special and it's something that uh, you know shapes another whole part of your creative world the um way I got started in music was probably not much different than most people in my generation, you know. I mean, I, I used to listen to uh, songs in the car with my parents, and I think the first song I ever learned to actually sing on my own was The Battle of New Orleans. By yeah, Johnny right. Horton, you know, <laughs> in 1814, took a little trip. I just love that. And it just got me on this whole thing of folk music. Then, of course, when the Beatles came along, I was just totally blown away by that. And um, I met a guy at a summer camp. His name is Dave McCann. And the two of us started playing together. And we were doing sort of folk music versions of Beatle tunes. And uh, we met this fellow. And, and I, I actually met my wife through playing music because we went to a party together or we went to a party and met each other there and I could play the guitar. And at the time it was the only move I had for girls, you know, <laughs> pull out the, the only move I have, but, uh, <laughs> but she's captured so you. You're we, too late on we that. We started singing. What's that Adrian? I said, she's captured you. You're too late on that. You, you, can yeah, pull yeah. Out, yeah. you can't pull out the guitar and get away with that anymore. <laughs> no. But um, we got together and we've been singing together all these years since we've been married for many years now and have always been singing partners. We had a band that lasted for practically 40 years called the Ash Creek String Band, where we played. I was the fiddler. She played the guitar and sang. Yeah. And we had banjo and bass and other instruments. So it's basically been folk music of one sort or of another that I've done all these years. And um, the latest, I, I call it the latest project we've been involved in, or I've been involved in, is the Walking Wood Mandolin Quartet, wow. where we have four different size mandolins that mirror the, uh, you know, the string quartet. You have the violins, uh -huh. you have two violins, you have a viola, and you have um, the uh, cello. Yeah. And in a mandolin quartet, you have two mandolins, you have a mandola, and yes. you have the mando cello, which is kind of a guitar-sized mandolin. And so um, in that band, unlike all the others, virtually all the music that we do is either uh, original mm -hmm. or it's, it's uh, covers of music that we like and we put together in really strange formats. Right, so, so you just rearrange combinations. it. Yeah. So to give you an example of one, we have this medley 
where we take this tune called The Elephant Walk, which was sort of a 1960s sort of light, uh, like almost a Harry Mancini kind of yeah. tune. Yeah. And we put it together with Sunshine of Your Love from Cream. Yeah, right. <laughs> The result is just very crazy, but uh, we we love putting together odd bits of instrumentation that turn into something quite unique when played on four mandolins. This is the same as renovating somebody's home, you know, like taking these odd bits and then bringing something from now or from another era back into it and making the magic happen so that it actually still does become a song or it still does become, yeah. it's not yeah. just a noise. Mm. Mm. And we have this crazy repertoire that we've developed over the years and we do it, you know, with the four of us kind of facing one another in a circle yeah. and one person kind of brings the musical project and then we all, you know, get into it and turn it into something. So it's very much an improvisation. Mm. Um, it's like a jam session. It's kind of like working in a charrette, you know, where everybody, yeah. there's some structure to the whole thing where you kind of know what you're hoping to get out of it, but you're not sure how it's going to turn out. Sounds so like working in my studio. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so what are you going to play for us? Is it going to be well, the Battle of New Orleans or um, what are you no, going to no, play? No, no. <laughs> I thought that so, might have been your most practiced song. No, I, I have I have a mandolin with me here. Okay, cool. And most of the instruments that I play are either handmade or they're they're vintage. And it happens that my antique Gibson mandolin is in the shop. And so uh, to tide me over until I was able to get it back, I bought this this A model mandolin that is uh called Big Apple Music. Oh, I got cool. it for $85 online from a guy that that had purchased it and didn't know how to play it. So it's worth substantially more, more than, than that. Than the $85. So you're on a win with that for starters. Yeah, I'm, I'm on a win with it. So my, my son Trevor is a guitar builder. You could Google Healy Guitars later and uh -huh. you could see what he does. So he took this and in 10 minutes he carve the slots a little bit deeper in the nut and change the bridge and made it into a playable instrument. And so uh, I and think that's I'll what an expert does. And that is what an What's expert, that? your son, that's what an expert does. Yeah. He just refines it. Yeah. Yeah. It took him 10 minutes. And, and this is probably a Chinese made instrument yeah. where they're cranking these things out they're very high quality for almost no money. Yeah. And, you know, in, in the musical community, we kind of go, is it moral to buy a Chinese instrument? And you know that there's yeah. some teenager that built it, but we kind of assuage our guilt when we buy something secondhand. Um, <laughs> it, gives, it lets you off the hook a little. A little uh, bit. But at any rate, um, I, I have a tune that was written in the, uh, oh, I guess the 1700s by this blind harper called O'Carolyn in Ireland, where the tradition was to go from manor to manor and the, yeah. the lords would support these itinerant musicians. 
And a fair number of these fellows were blind yeah. and as O'Carolyn was, and they weren't really able to make a living at, at much else. And there, there's, if you think about the blues tradition in the United mm -hmm. States, mm -hmm. there are all these fellows, you know, Blind Willie and so forth, mm -hmm. who through one bad luck incident Sto or yeah. another, yeah. ended up not able to pick the cotton or work in the steel mills or whatever it is, and they but made their money. But they shaped, they've shaped music for the world. Yeah. But this fellow, this fellow, uh, O'Carolyn was a contemporary of Vivaldi. And so this is called O'Carolyn's Draft. And you can hear some classical music influence, but it's, you know, Irish music that's hundreds of years old that's still being played because it's so beautiful. And the wonderful thing about the folk music community is that the music is accessible enough that if you know a certain repertoire, you can go all over the world and you can play with people. So I could go to Denmark right now and I could sit down in a town square and find people that I could play with. And it's just a wonderful thing. That's, that's pretty cool. So take us away. Let me see if I can move back far enough. A little trip to Ireland. See the instrument a little yeah, bit. Yeah, we can. Okay, I'm in tune. I'll have to see if I can do this. I love it. If there, I usually warm up before I play. But of course, yeah. But that's that was fabulous. That was fabulous. And I'd like to tip our hat to our common friend Peter Tui, who um, also played on uh, on the podcast. Um, but he took on Eddie Van Halen, <laughs> and uh, also Jeff Dungan, who played on the podcast as well. Like I think music shapes so much of the feel that we have in life, and it brings so much joy. And that was really fabulous to have some folk music. Colin, thank you so much, man. Um, this was a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. My pleasure, buddy. I'll um, post all your socials. We'll let people know how to get in touch with you and all the rest. And uh, if you want to play some more, we'll just fade it out at the end. Okay. Cool, man. Thank you again. Magic Arrows is brought to you by the Architect Marketing Institute. Clean, simple, sugar-free magic arrows that hit the mark for fast results. 
Let's fire a magic arrow into this week's problem. Now I know feed pressure is one of the biggest things facing designers. It doesn't matter what level you're at. There is no one golden bullet for it. Uh, if it was, it was probably select the right type of clients. But if you're in a situation where you're being pressured on fees, I'm going to give you a way of dealing with it. And it's by asking, say, three questions. And this is called takeaway selling. So this is where you kind of offer something up and then you take it away and see if they follow you. It's almost like imagine if you had some hot ch chocolate cookies and you had a plate full of them. You put them in front of them, someone and then they went to reach out and then you, you pulled it away and you see if they get up and follow you. It's that type of thing. So this is called takeaway selling. So the first question you ask, you say, well, why don't you just leave the situation as it is? Why, why make the change? That's an unusual thing for a designer to say. Well, why not just leave it as it is? And see how they answer. And then you might say, why did you want to speak to me? Why did you not get someone else? And see if they follow you. See if they answer properly. And the third question would be, well, why not do it later? Now, by asking these negative questions, you're going to get a lot more information out of someone than by trying to convince them to do it. Because by pulling the plate of hot cookies away, they're either going to react or they're not. And if they do react and give you answers and explain why it's important, then what they're doing is telling you how important something is. Now while these magic arrows are great for fast results, when you're ready to run better quality projects from clients who value great design and are prepared to pay great fees, I've got a special training just for you. Go to archmarketing.org forward slash talk design. Take your magic arrow and fire at will.